Well, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Beatitudes section of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's my privilege to open the Bible and serve you uh, spiritual nourishment. I feel like we all need it, and uh, those that are coming in live stream, you need it. We all need it. We're all needing to feast on on Bible and on truth uh, right now for some encouragement. Um, But Matthew's Gospel chapter 5 is the Sermon on the Mount, and the topic this morning, or the theme is why your life is supposed to be hard. So you say, man, that sounds like a total contradiction in terms of encouragement, and yet this hard-hitting sermon is just laying it out straight, straight up truth, just like we like it in Alaska, just tell me straight up what it says, here we are, it actually is the path to blessing as a Christian. If your heart Watch this. If your heart is transformed in alive, you can process truth like this, where we're going to talk about persecution and how that turns into joy and blessing. And if your heart's alive, it can do that. It's got that mechanism. It's got that ability to do that. If it's not alive, then my prayer and heart is that the word would hit you and transform your heart so that you would be able to see persecution as blessing. Now, I'm not trying to speak in terms of some cavalier approach to life where you're trying to bring persecution on yourself, but we know in the history of the church uh, that even pre-Christ, the prophets were persecuted, right? Hebrews speaks of men and women who were persecuted for righteousness' sake, Moses, David, um, Abraham, just to name a few. And we went through Hebrews not too long ago, verse by verse, and the godly women of the Bible, Sarah um, is one who stands out in my mind, who, who suffered, who, who was um, willing to stand for truth at risk of her own life. So men and women have always suffered. In the book of Acts, we know that people, the early church was persecuted, was beaten, shackled, put in, put in jail for preaching the gospel, just for doing the normal Christian things that Jesus wanted the church to do, brought persecution. We know that in the early church, uh, and, and even in modern days in the church, there have been missionaries who've lost their lives for the sake of Christ. Do you remember um, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint, and they brought their wives, and Elizabeth Elliott became famous because she survived uh, the, the Aka Indians onslaught where they, they killed the men. And they, they, those men went there, they preached the gospel, they had lowered food into the tribes and, and had won their hearts, so they thought, but ultimately spears were turned on them and they were killed and the children were witness to that and, and great salvation came through that where um, the tribes were won to Christ, but it was uh, through a great sacrifice. Stan Dale is a, a missionary that's lesser known uh, by the church, but he ministered in the Irangira uh, area and in Indonesia and was himself an Australian. And I read his biography. It was called The Lords of the Earth, which is speaking about how those cannibalistic tribes thought of themselves as lords of the earth, but they were cannibals. And they ended up killing Stan Dale and, um, and his partner as well um, by arrows But his testimony as well made a great impact and people were saved. And there's still a great testimony there in Irangira in that area um, in the Burmese region. There's countless no-name situations. There are people that 
are persecuted physically, that are hurt in um, you know areas where the church has to meet underground or um, Islamic-dominated regions where families um, will even ostracize children. And I knew of one um, young lady who went to the Master's University, and her testimony was that she had a broken arm from her, her family who persecuted her and kind of kicked her out of the home for going to a Christian school. These things happen. And I mean, even one other testimony, a Soviet um, guy, a, a guy who actually is an American who was ministering in the Soviet Union. He was you know, grabbed by the secret police, pulled into a room, and um, they tied him up and took a knife up and down his back, threatening him. I mean, but just a regular preacher. I mean, these, these things do take place. People are physically persecuted. Even in America, there is physical abuse, physical violence that takes place in the name of Christ. If you were to Google Christian persecution, the word on the streets is it's coming, it's coming, it's coming in strong force, stronger than ever before. However, I want us to pay close attention to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 10, 11, and 12, because Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount defines persecution, not in terms of what happens to you physically, and not in terms of religious freedom and meeting together. And this is how a lot of times we frame up what persecution would look like or not, right? Whether we can meet together, whether we'd be put in jail, whether something would happen to us physically. That's those are categories we think of for Christian persecution. But I want us to narrow our gaze on the precise wording that Jesus is using here because he is defining Christian persecution in terms of words, in terms of being reviled against. And this is something that we can all probably relate to. If you've stood for Christ and righteousness and gospel in your actions or in your words and in your humble attitude, you no doubt have been reviled against. You've been falsely accused. Words have come as arrows into your hearts before. We can all relate to this. Listen as I read Jesus's words beginning at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this is the blessing of persecution. What I'm answering here, if you're taking notes, is three questions regarding Christian persecution. Um, why you should expect it, why you should expect persecution, what does persecution look like, how you're supposed to respond to it. So why, should, why it's coming, why you should expect that it's going to come, what does it look like, and how are you supposed to react to it. That's what Jesus is laying out for us in these three verses. Why should we expect it? Persecution is the Greek word dioko. It's a Greek word that means um, to pursue. So it's coming. It's on the pursuit. It's not something that we ask for. We're not trying to paint a target on our chest and say, I want persecution. Persecution, nevertheless, is coming for you. You will be pursued by people who do not like Jesus. Jesus assumed that persecution would come. He also assumes that, and surprisingly, it seems like an oxymoronic thing to say, it's a blessing when you're persecuted for Jesus, for righteousness sake. 
Blessed. This is one of the nine blessed statements. Joy, happiness comes to the heart when you are persecuted. First Peter 4, 12 uh, is a classic verse in terms of expectation and expecting persecution. Beloved, Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And he was saying that in the context of Nero, the dictator overlord who was um, bringing heavy persecution on the Jews and the Christian church, kind of pushing that all together. He was lighting up Christians and putting them literally um, on, on posts to light up his garden, putting pitch around them and burning them at the stake to make a point about not following Jesus and what's going to happen to you. And Peter said, don't be surprised by this fiery trial in that context. Well, what are you persecuted for? It's righteousness sake. Verse six, we learned earlier a couple of weeks ago, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, literally present active participle, hungering and thirsting for righteousness sake. You're hungry like for Thanksgiving. You want more and more of Jesus. You want more and more holiness. You want more and more of the undivided heart of a Christian. That's righteousness. We're not talking about raw obedience. We're not talking about church attendance. We're not talking about getting our life right through moral do's and don'ts. We're talking about loving holiness, loving Jesus, loving heaven, loving church in terms of each other, Christian friendships, undivided hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, right? For they shall see God. It's an indivisible heart where you don't have a foot in the world and a foot in the Bible or a foot in the world and the foot in church or Christ. You're all Christ and you're going, I want an undivided heart. And I love that. When you want that and you live that, that becomes offensive. It creates a chemical reaction where people who don't want Jesus will react to you wanting Jesus. It's as simple as that. And it draws, it, it creates a pursuit of persecution. So your righteousness is your appetite to do God's will. It's, it's to be like Jesus here on earth. Look at verse 11. It is explicitly saying that. You'll be reviled and persecuted, threatened, verse 11, on, see, look at these last three words in your Bibles on verse 11, on my account. It's you walking in the world saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You say, well, that's Paul, he's a missionary, his life was on the line. It's that attitude. It's that attitude. If you're not receiving persecution, if no one is reviling you, if no one's offended by your life, you're not living as Christ. Again, it's a delicate balance. We're not trying to draw fire. We're not trying to do that. But we're just trying to live like Christ did. What did Christ do? He just walked in and talked truth. He walked into crowds or people or he would contradict worldly statements. He would confront pharisaical um, you know, falsehood that, that would draw people into hell. He would confront legalism. He would confront um, unrighteousness, immorality. We referenced, I think last week, he met the woman on the well. He wasn't trying to get her upset. He was just saying, yeah, you know, you have been living in a string of immorality and immoral relationships. You need to drink from the well of living water. It's just talking um, about eternal life. It's talking about the difference between God who's creator. He created everything in six literal day created days. And that converse to evolution. I mean, everybody these days is promoting, you know, secular humanism on steroids all over the place. Think of the, think of the, uh, 
I won't name this political figure, but this person who um, just on a political platform was saying, we need to protect our power. We need to, you know, don't let someone take your power, your power, your power. That's propping yourself up as God. That's what that means. Your power. Uh, when Jesus confronted the demons or confronted people who were demonized, the issue is Jesus is saying, I'm the authority. You're not the authority. Demons, you're not the authority. And they were offended by that. The truth of, when you say the truth of God's word is the authority on what matters, the truth of God word, God's word tells us God is holy and he's not happy with worldliness. That kind of conflict, that kind of power encounter is what creates sparks that fly. But we don't do it to draw persecution. We do it for the sake of the truth. We do it to glorify God. We do it because, hey, this is why you witness. Jesus told you to. <laughs> Right? Matthew 20. We go out into the world. We make disciples. We sow the seed. We sow the truth. And some people just, you know, they don't listen. Some people listen and believe. And then others actually get angry. And that's the category we're talking about. What do they do when they get angry? When you've confronted their Phariseeism. Remember Jesus, he, he outed the Pharisees and said, it's not about external moral um, law keeping. It's about the heart. He confronted the legalist, you know, like the rich young ruler. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be right with God? Well, sell everything. In other words, you have to believe in Jesus by faith. You have to be willing to give everything away. That's what faith looks like to follow me. And he went away sad. So Jesus did those things and, and outed these situations. Paul did it in the early church. Uh, he said, I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Every time he was beaten, every mark that he had on him, he saw that as taking a hit for Jesus. Jesus' ministry was three years, went up to the right hand of the Father. Spirit comes down. Paul, just like us, he's just preaching the gospel, doing his thing, but he suffered physical persecution. But every Christian will suffer a kind of persecution. Second Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be, same word, persecuted. Will be pursued. It's gonna happen. John 15.20, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Um, the promise though on converse, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. So it's not all bad news. As you live bold for Jesus, which it's time to be bold, Right? It's time to stand up. We can't do it through politics. We can't do it through social activism. We do it through giving truth. And we just give the word of God boldly. And what happens? God blesses and certain people believe it. And then other people will kind of just say, I don't want to listen. And then there'll be a category of persecution. That's the dynamic. And we're doing this on account of Jesus. So what does this look like? Well, a lot of times this can be very mundane. I, I just want to point this out. Your witness, as bold as you think I'm promoting, is as simple as like having the faith of a mustard seed. Go into your office and just quote a Bible verse, just in passing. Just say, you know, I've, I've been hanging on to this promise lately. It's really getting me through the week. I mean, that's witnessing. It's uh, It's... Putting on a Christian song, you know, or singing a Christian song, uh, you know, out loud or, or referencing something. I was at a, get what, what's the place called? Guitar Center? Is that, help me here, it's uh, you guitarist, yeah. I was there, you know, um, with one of my kids and, 
he's interested in guitar and stuff. And this guy in the front area was, I wanted him to help me because I know nothing about guitars. And so, and my youngest is interested. And so I'm doing that. But I just begin to talk about Christian music and say, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher. So I get up in front of people too. He was a, you know, a rocker or whatever, you know artist and uh, and so we were connecting and he knew christian music and christian bands it's like that and some people like it and some people connect with you and they're not a believer at all but sometimes that'll draw fire and that's to be expected that's what jesus is saying there's blessing in it what is the blessing the blessing is approval the word blessed here that's repeated over and over means that if these dynamics are happening in your life, in your heart, where you're soul searching, you're ladder climbing up the rungs of the Beatitudes, those nine blessed, you're going, I'm willing to look inside and, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm willing to release self-righteousness or me trying to figure out my own life. I give it to you, God. Um, blessed are those who who mourn. They look and they see their sin. They're looking in the mirror. They're meek. They're following the Holy Spirit. They're thirsty and hungry for righteousness. They're merciful. They're mercy givers, pure in heart, undivided, peacemakers. Those who are willing to go into the war zone and deal with conflict resolution, call out a sin, use the Bible, take the hit and do that. There is blessing in that. It's far more blessed to be on the playing field than to be sitting on the bench, right? You know you're a Christian, you're sitting there, you know you're supposed to do the right thing, and you're going, put me in the game, coach. Put me in the game, coach. I want to get out there. Then when you're out there, you're out of breath. Have you ever, you know, and you find out how out of shape you really are, you're trying to run the court back and forth or, you know, do whatever. But then if you get warmed up and you get into the game, you might be getting hit, elbowed, bruised, out of breath, but it's gratifying and it's joyful. And you're like, man, we could win this thing. And, huh, you know, and then you eat your orange at halftime and you feel good about that. That's what we're talking about. That's blessing. And, and that might sound like a trivial way to put it, but it really is. I mean, Paul said it's to be an athlete, a farmer, a soldier is to get out there and be part of the mission. And you know when you're part of the mission that you're blessed because it says in verse 10, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the promise. Blessed, if you're persecuted, for loving Jesus, for loving righteousness, for quoting Bible, for being a little bit out loud, salt and light in the world, you're blessed because you're affirmed that you're one of his. You're a son or daughter of God. Like uh, verse nine, you're going into peacemaking and, and you realize God is your father. You're, the kingdom of God is yours. There's righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit going on in your heart. That's kingdom dynamic. Heaven is assured, but heaven is assured in your heart today and you experience it now. It's the same, um, it's the same reference as verse three. If you uh, are poor in spirit, then you have the kingdom of God. If you're willing to stop trying to earn your way into the kingdom and say, God, you have to do it all by grace, then you know you have the kingdom. And it's the same thing. When you love Jesus, take stands for Jesus and receive persecution, then you know you're part of his kingdom. So that's point one, why you should expect persecution. It's pursuing you. Point two, what does persecution look like? Again, if you Google it, it's coming, you know, the rights are going to be taken, you know, church will be illegal. All these things could happen. But persecution, as Jesus defines it, is in terms of words. It's not only words, but in terms of words. 
When Jesus was put on the cross, there was physical punishment and pain, suffering that is unimaginable, but there was words going on. People were wagging their heads. And I think the picture is like wagging tongues. I mean, they were saying very, very hurtful, wrong, false, blasphemous, undermining things to take Jesus on. And as a Christian, we're standing on his behalf. We're being persecuted on his account. And we are going to take verbal hits. Reviling will happen when we stand for him. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you. When they say evil things. This is the word malign. When people revile you, they, they stick you with the sword of their tongue. It comes in many forms at many levels. The first is in terms of an insult. People will insult you. They'll condemn you and they'll try to discredit you. They will try to drag you into a verbal tit for tat. When somebody says something mean about you, you need to in your mind, especially if it's for Christ's sake, just say, this is to be expected and this is what it looks like. It's okay. It's all right. I mean, the more that you're prepared for it, and you don't want to prepare in a prideful way, right? Where you draw fire by your flesh, and then they say something, you say, oh, good. No, you don't want it to be like that at all. You want to just be humble like Jesus, walking in the Spirit, uh, being meek, not too hot, not too cold, just kind of walking, strength under control. And then when people assault you, or misrepresent you, or malign you, You go, okay, I'm going to absorb that by God's grace and realize that this is the path of Jesus Christ that he has for me. It doesn't necessarily mean physical violence. And I want to point that out because words are so powerful. They really are. I mean, think about all the social media power dynamics that are going on. If you're not able to communicate on social media, you could be in a deficit in some ways in your business today or in your life Um, But there's danger there in the power of words. James 3, a forest fire is set ablaze by a small little spark, right? And that's the metaphor picture of the tongue. The tongue that, like a wild horse, can't be bridled in. You can't rein it in. The power of the tongue. The power of the tongue. The power of words. It's such an important thing for us to hold in check. Not just to say, I'm not going to speak now because I don't want to do damage. It's to actually... Fill your mind with truth so that the words you say are edifying, not just not tearing down, but actually building people up with truth, with promises, with the word. And it comes out through our mouths. So we want to be careful there. But people will mutter against you. They'll cut you down. They'll, they'll assault your integrity. Um, that's what they did all through 2 Corinthians. If you read that with this in mind, you'll see that they were the false apostles. They were the huper apostoloi, which is the super apostles. And we are the super apostles. We're, we're better than Paul. Paul thinks he's an apostle. He's really not an apostle. Um, 2 Corinthians, I think it's 11, where Paul is using sarcasm as if he robbed a church because they were accusing him of stealing money. They were accusing him of immorality and things like that of teaching a false gospel. And Paul was, um, you know, he was hurt by that, but he was definitely one that said, I'm going to come back with the word of God. I'm going to come back with truth. 
And the key thing I've heard when you're reviled is not to try to get into a verbal match with anyone ever because you're not going to lose. Everybody's going to build their own case with people and make a defense for themselves for why they said what they did or where they're coming from. What you want to do is fight for truth, fight for truth and God's glory and let the chips fall. This is what the Bible says and this is what we're arguing for. We all need to repent. Let's argue for truth. That's it. I remember one person saying, it's far better than sitting across the table and going back and forth. Invite them up to the table next to you and let's all just look at the Bible. Let's look at the Bible and fight for truth to get it right. There's all kinds of false things that people will conjure up and make up to discredit not just you, but the message. People want to snuff out the accountability of Christ, the accountability of God's word. That's why they want to disarm it by discrediting. They want to disarm the power of the gospel by discrediting the life behind the gospel. That's what Nero tried to do to the early church that was threatening him. Here he is, this powerful leader over the Greco-Roman empire, And Nero was accusing the Christians of wanting to, they were conspiring to set Rome on fire. It's because through the grapevine, or in the church, the grace vine, uh, through the grace vine, it it had come up to Nero's ears that, you know, they're talking about the world's going to be burned one day by fire. That's second Peter, right? Well, he translates that into, you want to burn my kingdom up. So we're accusing you of that. That's twisting truth, twisting Christian prophecy. And then you have the accusation that the church was being immoral because they call themselves a family and community together. Or they take the Lord's Supper, which is eating the flesh and blood of Jesus, which must mean that you're cannibalistic, you're cannibals as a cult. And the Lord's Supper is is all wrong and love feast, you know, and you must be part of immorality in that. So all that was a misconstrual and a falsehood that was laid on the church. I want you to see, though, as you suffer and as you were persecuted, that there is an amazing truth here. God draws near to us in our persecution. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you. And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The um, person here is, it moves from verse 10 where it's all in third person. You know, just the one or he or he that is, is going through something to Jesus moving from just talking to the masses. Like a preacher talking just to a group to zeroing in on the eye level and saying, blessed are you. This is going to happen to you. And Jesus cares personally about you. It's uh, just like David when he was talking about how the Lord's his shepherd. I shall not want. God, you are sufficient for all my needs. You make, he makes me lie down in a green pasture. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. I can eat. I can drink. I can rest. He leads me by the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then verse 4, he changes from he being in third person to verse 4 to God being in second person. And it's even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm in danger now. I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus is with you when you are persecuted. How do you know you are a Christian? Well, you're being persecuted and you know God is with you and he's affirming you in that. He's with you. He's with you. 
He's with you. I love that you is mentioned four times in a row in um, verse 11. And it's also your reward in, in verse 12. And um, the prophets who were persecuted before you, that's all that emphasis. I want you to see in verse 11 as well that when people run out of material to twist in your life and revile against you with, they will make up new material. Do you see that? It's uh, blessed are you when others revile you. That's when they're, they're twisting things about your life. They're, they're maligning what they know about you and twisting it. They persecute you and, they, and utter all kinds of evil against you. Here's this key word, falsely. People will begin to just outright lie about you. When they don't have anything on you, they'll just make stuff up about you and use that against you. So there's two levels of verbal onslaught, verbal persecution that you just need to be ready for. But don't miss the fact that God is always with you in these verbal attacks. Stuff you say, it's stuff you don't say, it's stuff you go to, it's stuff you don't go to, it's at business, it's stuff you go along with, it's stuff that people say, hey, look the other way. You say, I'm not going to look the other way. I'm going to have integrity. I'm going to do the right thing. By doing that, it's offensive. It will incite persecution. It just will. You'll find that you're not invited to certain things. You're disincluded from things. You're not promoted to things. There is persecution that happens, but you take it. You understand it. A lot of times it doesn't take much. Uh, when I became a Christian at 17 years old, uh, my friends did as well, my best friends. And we were surfers, and so we would go on little surf trips and things, and I would put in Christian music suddenly. Or I would you know, just not participate in certain jokes or talk certain ways. I was different. And I didn't have any idea I was having a certain effect on this guy. I remember him sitting in, you know, we were all in this Bronco, kind of exactly what I drive now. And he was on the way. You didn't use seatbelts back then. So he was just sitting in the trunk. And I must have been talking about Christ all the way down this um, multi-hour trip that we were taking. I didn't remember it, but I went away to go to a Christian university and he went to um, the um, you know, Tidewater Community College down the street. And my best friend, who had also become a Christian, was in class with him. Well, he started just going, Jeff Grotz, this guy is slamming Christ all down our face. Can you believe what he's doing? He's just made a big speech about him from the class. My friend stood up all five foot four of himself and he just said, what are you doing? You know, he, he's not doing that at all. And he needs to, I need to stand for Christ right now and say this. And my friend was bolder for Christ than I had ever been. And, uh, you know, it was, it was cool. But the point I, the reason I bring that up, that's a, a bygone story, is that uh, it just doesn't take very much. You don't have to say very much. I'm not asking you to stand on a street corner and preach. I'm not saying you need to shut, you know, target down and in the center aisle or grab the microphone and take over in that moment. I, I'm just saying just be yourself, live your life, be like Jesus. Jesus just went into population centers. That's what Paul did and just lived. And as you're living, you're pointing out things and looking for opportunities and divine appointments and you're not equivocating. There are moments where you will know before God that God is saying in your heart, you need to say something or you need to not do that. I mean, there's life and there's all kinds of ways and preferences in life, things that you're willing to do that other people won't do. There's stronger and weaker Christians. There's all kinds of preference. There's 
education choices. There's ways people dress. There's ways things you'll listen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about squabbles like those. Those are gray area things that we need to be deferential to each other on and love on both sides all the time. What I'm talking about is that divine appointment where you're going, I could say something right now. That usually is one of those moments where you need to take a breath, be humble, pray in the moment, and then speak and just begin to speak. You know, I really believe that God's word says this. And this, if you, you know, bad company corrupts good morals. If you're around that person long enough, you're going to become like that person. Saying something, you know, Jesus is the only way to heaven. I know we're talking in an an eclectic, ecumenical way, but if you don't have the true gospel, then you don't have the path to Christ. You start saying stuff like that and it will spark persecution. Not something we're seeking, but it is something that happens. Um, One place where there's a lot of behind the scenes gospel witness are in homes where you have two unbelievers who get married and one of them gets saved. And so now you have a saved and an unsaved person in the home. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to live as Christ in the home and try to win them without a word. Women, that's what 1 Peter says. The prologue to that directive in 1 Peter 3.1 is all the end of 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you remember that chapter divisions were added later, it's 1 Peter 2 bleeding right into 1 Peter 3. And it's... 1 Peter 2 at the end there in verse 21, Christ suffered, leaving you an example to follow, committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He's being blasphemed. He's put on the cross. He's trusting God as he suffers. That's the example. And then, you know, he bore our sins on the tree. Um, By his wounds, we are healed. We were straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd, the overseer of our souls. That goes right into 1 Peter 3.1. Likewise, just like Jesus, likewise wives. Women, be like Jesus in this moment. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It's conduct. And Christian conduct is powerful. Don't underestimate the power of example of what you don't say, of when you don't speak. That will also draw persecution. That is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. 2 Timothy 2.24. Um, it, it's amazing. I, I had a pastor who was a mentor. I'm going to see him this weekend. Um, I'm going to a, a funeral um, for his, his wife died. I'm going to be at the funeral. I'm going to be with him over the weekend. And he mentored me 11 years. But one of the strongest moments of mentoring that he had in my life was when we as elders, this was in, you know, another church in the South. And we were in this meeting and this guy was was really persecuting, giving verbal persecution against the pastor and against our church. And he was a medical doctor and uh, he was a, a good man, but but he went off the rails spiritually and so we called him in an early hour before work. We were meeting his elders and we just called him and said, hey, how are you doing? Would you be willing to meet with us? And he said, yeah, I'll meet right now. And the elder went, oh, careful what you pray for. Okay. Uh, and he came in and he came in loaded for bear verbally and sat on the other end of the table and verbally blasted the senior pastor for an hour. Just one falsehood and accusation and twisting of things and character um, you know, and everybody sat there shocked. We all just stunned, silence, just sat there. And the pastor just took it and didn't say anything back. He left. 
And the pastor said, the Lord's servant, he said, this is what was in my mind. 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And it was, it was pure evil what this guy did. And one of the elders in the room burst into tears and said, we should not have had, have allowed that to happen. And ever since then, I've always been armed in elders meetings. If somebody comes in and wants to just blast, I go, time out, let's do this appropriately with witnesses and humility and love with the scripture and make sure the conditions are set. And now let's talk, but not the freestyle blasting. But regardless of what happened, his example was strong by what he didn't say. And that was my point. You may wonder, what's wrong with me? I, I have no experience with this. I've never been persecuted. Nobody's attacking me. Well, that could be a moment for you to examine yourself to see if you are being like Jesus enough. Do you talk like Jesus enough? Do you act like Jesus enough? Um, Do you fit into the world too much? Luke's gospel says this. Woe to you. This is Jesus. Woe to you. Luke 6, 26. Woe or cursed are you when all people speak well of you. I mean, again, if you don't have a, a new heart, that makes no sense. It's a bad thing when everybody speaks well of you. Actually, yes, in this context, that's true. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. False prophets were in good with everybody because they were telling everybody what they wanted to hear. But when we live on account of Christ, we're suffering on account of Christ This is when we will not compromise. We will not back down. We will always stand for truth. We won't equivocate on the gospel. Some people say, well, if Jesus was here, people would believe Jesus because it's Jesus, right? Um, They don't believe me, but they'll believe Jesus. Well, no, we are bringing the same message and the same words that Jesus gave. And so if they don't believe the word, they wouldn't believe Jesus either. What is this strong word that we need to bring? Well, I actually, the material I'm preaching from this morning is about 10 or 11 years old. I've been here, I don't know, 11 and a half years. I, when I first came about six, or, six months or so in, I preached the Sermon on the Mount and came to this text. And I pulled these notes and I typically rework everything and you know do all of that and read a bunch. And I have, I'm reworking the material, but this week I didn't. And I had a lot of shepherding. I had to live out the Beatitudes. I had to make hard phone calls and, and do things. And um, so I, I'm just preaching from the notes that were from before, but they apply. But one of the illustrations is dated. It's about 10 years old, 11 years old. Remember the book, The Shack? Who remembers the book, The Shack? I mean, that was, that was very, very popular. It was a 300 um, or 3 million copies were in print. It was a New York Times bestseller. The main character in the shack um, was Mac. That was his name. And he was talking to Jesus. And I think this is an example of how people are preaching the gospel or speaking the gospel in a way that causes no persecution whatsoever. It, instead, it, it creates a bestseller, right? Everybody wants it. They're not offended by it. So Mac is talking to Jesus. Here's the dialogue. This is Jesus. Those who love me have come from every system that exists they were Buddhists, Mormons, Baptists, or Muslims. Some are Democrats, some are Republicans. And many don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institutions. So it's anti-institutional, it's ecumenical. He says, he goes on to say, I have followers who were murderers and many who were self-righteous. 
Some were bankers, bookies, Americans, Iraqis, Jews, and Palestinians. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa, into brothers and sisters, into my beloved. Now, again, false teaching is always like cotton candy. It's no nutrition. It'll actually hurt you, but it tastes really good on the outside. Sugary. You know, it's like, yeah, God, I mean, Jesus reaches all different kinds of people groups. He meets people where they are. What's not to love about that? But um, then the question by Mac kind of exposes the problem. Uh, Mac says to Jesus, supposedly, does that mean all roads lead to you? And Jesus, you know, the supposed Jesus says, not at all. Most roads don't lead anywhere. Most roads don't lead anywhere. What it does mean is that I will travel to any road to find you. Now, again, it sounds almost palatable, almost right, but it's vague and it's postmodern and it's ecumenical and it's, it's sort of, you know, you can be on any road and find the Lord and God will just find you. Let's imagine if Paul preached that way at Mars Hill with all of the idolatry that he was experiencing as he walked through Athens and Thessalonica and those areas. Uh, let's just suppose his preaching style was a shack version of preaching. This is how he would do it. He'd say, he's standing on the hill of Areopagus. He's got all the people around him. I know you all have idols. I have the true God, the one you call the unknown God. He wants to come and meet you where you are. Now, look, you don't have to take the name Christian. You don't have to do that. Or even come to our organized church meetings or gatherings. God will bring you along to himself just as he wants to. Well, that's not how Paul did it. That's basically what the shack was representing. But this is how Paul ended his sermon at Areopagus. Acts 17, verse 30 to 34. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all people everywhere to repent, which means to turn from your sin, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Here's the categories of response. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So the point so far, why should you expect persecution? Well, because it's coming. It's coming. Loving righteousness is offensive and it will make persecution pursue you. Number two, what does persecution look like? It looks like when people revile you or twist things up about you or make stuff up about you. Now, number three, how are you supposed to respond to persecution? Look at verse 12. Here's, these are commands. They don't look like commands. They just look like ideals. These are, this is not idealism. This is what you're supposed to do. You're reviled against, what do you do? Rejoice and be glad. Those are commands. What's the action of the Christian life? Rejoice, find joy in it. For why? Your reward is great in heaven. If you were persecuted for Jesus, not for preferences, 
But for Jesus, not for gray areas, but for the Lord, the word, the gospel. If that's happening, then there's reward that should happen in your heart now. I know I'm one of his. I know I'm a child of God. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm knowing he's called. I know he's called me. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm in the line of the prophets. I'm right there. It's what the early church did. They were rejoicing in Jesus Acts 5, when they were confronted by the high priest, verse 27 through 29, for teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, The high priest were saying, you're bringing man's blood upon us. And Peter said, no, no, no. We're preaching the gospel and we have to obey God rather than man. The religious leaders, they slandered the church and then they beat, they beat them. Verse 40, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Verse uh, 41, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus the Christ. We get the assurance of salvation when we are reviled. So expect it. Number one, it's coming. And it's coming in the form of slander and then have joy in it. All right, I'm going to give some final application points. This is what I used to do. It's in my notes and, um, from a decade ago, and it's uh, take-home points. So you can write them down. They'll be posted online um, by Tuesday, I think. So they'll be there for you if you don't want to write them. But you might write them down. Number one, don't waste your persecution. I'm taking that from a John Piper book and theme from way back. He said, don't waste your life. But in particular, don't waste it when you're being reviled. Grow from it. Grow from it. Just make a decision. I'm being wronged. I can grow. I can grow. It's redemptive. Do you view it as God's plan for your life? It obviously is. It matches with what Jesus said would happen. Number two, don't pursue persecution. Persecution will pursue you. Don't go running out looking for it, but expect it. Don't wear it as a badge of honor if you bring it upon yourself through a preference. But also don't live to avoid persecution. Don't try to insulate yourself. Put yourself out there. Expect it. Number three, make sure your persecution is on account of Jesus. Not preferences, not by self-righteousness, but true righteousness. By the word, by the gospel. Clear message. Number four, take verbal persecution seriously. The power is in words, right? We need to be careful that we guard our own tongues by our own speech, things that we say. But don't estimate, underestimate the power of when someone slanders you. Words hurt. They're deep. That's what Jesus defines persecution as, as words. It's incredible. So don't underestimate the power of words. And find refuge in Christian community like here at church. Number five, obey God's commands to find joy in persecution. You struggle to believe your faith is real. Well, when your faith is proven and tested and challenged and affirmed, find joy in that and seek heaven for that. You know, Christian persecution can be so subtle But it's real and it's dynamic. But we have to live for Christ. And when you live for Christ in front of a child, for instance, they see it. They know when mom or dad is being hurt verbally or they know when you hurt someone verbally. Kids in the church, kids in the Christian school, they're all watching. 
But if you wield the word of God well and humbly, trust the truth, trust Christ, kids are going to believe. Other people are going to believe. Spouses will believe. It's your Christian witness. It's a testimony. And it's um, the life God has called each of us to live.